I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Studio Ghibli Collection, Part 2, Castle in the Sky, Grave of the Fireflies, and My Neighbor Totoro. Above the Clouds. Beyond Legend. There is a castle in the sky. Beyond that cloud is a floating city that no one here on Earth believes exists. There it is! Look! Now I can prove that the legend is true. Walt Disney Home Entertainment presents a Studio Ghibli film. The long-awaited, award-winning epic adventure about an enchanted princess. It's my fault getting you mixed up in all of this. And a daring young boy. Are you kidding? This is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. Who must discover the secret of the castle in the sky to save a mystical land from destruction. We have to do something, Patsu. I've got a plan. Critics are hailing Castle in the Sky as wonderful, fantastic make-believe and a joy to watch. Walt Disney Home Entertainment presents Studio Ghibli's special edition of Castle in the Sky. Coming soon to DVD and video. As a postscript to what I said in the first episode about eggs and the food in Ghibli films looking more delicious than food that actually gets prepared in live action, I realized yesterday while watching, uh, I think it was The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, a camera has never tasted an egg. An animator. Has. A camera has never smelled miso soup. An animator has. Yeah. So when an animator draws a bowl of ramen, they can show the pork, for example, the roast pork in that beautiful shade of pink that just conveys that succulence sitting on the top of the bowl when if you actually had some that you just ladle out of a pan, the pork would probably sink to the bottom and you'd be able to smell it, but you wouldn't be able to see it. Mm -hmm. So what the animator is doing then is taking the qualities of the concept of that item. Which are present in glamour shots of food that you yep. see uh, either uh, in, for restaurants <laughs> advertising their food or, Correct. you know, chefs or just anything, anyone who Instagrams their food. Yeah, but then you start getting into the slightly hazy world of spraying glue on bread to make it shiny. Mm. And using mashed uh, potatoes using mashed for potato vanilla ice cream. for ice cream. Um, and, and oh, the cheese pull, motherfucker. Yep, the cheese pull. The <laughs> infamous cheese pull. But the animator... No, no, he's great. He made pizza seem like a fantasy version of pizza for us. The animator is conveying the tastes and the scents of the food mm. through a visual means. They are translating it to a medium that is visual only. It is true art because it's had to go through a filter of a person. Now obviously a photograph, you can get it looking exactly as it looks to your eye, maybe even if slightly better. With, glue. with the right lighting, <laughs> with the right everything, and you are effectively treating the food as a model of itself, as opposed to the spirit of that food, which yeah. is what you get in animation. Which is why when people put photographs of the meal they just cooked on our Discord food and drink thread, they very rarely look that fantastic. Mm. But the accompanying text that explains how delicious it was oh, yeah. and how intricate the, the making of it was, that's the part that really gets yeah, across. That's the food poetry. Yeah. 
But I mean, there are going to be people who are entirely, they are fired off on just the visual spectrum where no amount of telling us about food or animating food will get to us as get to them as much as just seeing a really good photographed piece of food. And obviously, that's what all the cooking shows do. Anyway, anyway, let's talk about the first few Ghibli films as a studio. So the first one was Laputa Castle in the Sky, or just Castle in the Sky. I'm not sure why it's called Laputa in the UK and certain other countries in Europe. Well, it specifically takes the name of the floating island from Gulliver's Travels. So if you remove right. that, you don't necessarily have the reference, at least in the title. Which is ironic, since eventually Ghibli would settle on Arietti, and the borrowers were Lilliputians. I asked you at the time, did the lady who wrote The Borrowers have to get the license to Gulliver's Travels? Uh, or was that, in those days, copyright law was more of a handshake? <laughs> also, I don't know that they're ever necessarily referred to as Lilliputians in the book. Mm. They're just oh, really? small people. I'm sure I heard that they were Lilliputians. Anyway. I don't know. No. あるよ。少女が空から降ってきた。少女の this is a lot more action-packed than I expected. Okay, so Castle in the Sky. This was one of the ones that really got to me because I think I've sat down and watched it with Willow repeatedly, the American language version with Mark Hamill as the villain. And uh, it's thoroughly engaging. But this time we watched the version with the Japanese language and I was really watching it with a mind to everything we've already said about uh, Miyazaki. And obviously when we watched it, this is actually one of the first of the ones we had seen. So we'd already gone through the ones we hadn't seen and we're now entering into the ones we had with new eyes. So my favorite game of all time is Breath of the Wild. We recorded a show on it a while back. I am eagerly awaiting releasing that in the weeks leading up to Tears of the Kingdom. I always felt like Breath of the Wild had a, a Ghibli feel to it. But when you actually get to the castle itself, not even just then, at the beginning and throughout the first act, all of those houses in the cliffside remind me of the structures in the canyons in Breath of the Wild. But once they get to the castle, I, I was just immediately reminded of the overgrowth and the ruins and the peace and the old mechanical guardians who then come back to life when humans turn up it it has a hypnotic 
seductive. It's almost dangerous because everything about it is concerned with the absence of people. Yeah, I get what you mean there. It's almost I like think... a you're not welcome here. It's sacred. I don't think it's necessarily a you're not welcome. You're right about the sacredness, but I think it's a little bit more... There's, there's something about the environments of Castle in the Sky, the film, mm. including the castle itself, yeah. that are representative of an intertwining of the world that comes out of the earth, mm. your trees, your overgrowth, cliffs, that kind of thing, and the world that is built on top of that by humans, your carved stone, your brick, your buildings and cutting the trees down and putting roads through, that kind of thing. It's that conflict again. Yeah, but in this world, there's so much the surface has cracked and the two have started to fuse. And it's present at the very, or towards the very end, when you have the, uh, effectively, robots that are that have appointed themselves... Gardeners. Yeah, caretakers of the earth. That uh, There's a specific word for it that I, has escapes me, but... I'm Silent sure running dudes. Never mind. Bruce Derns. It's like shepherd for sheep, steward. Like stewards of, of the earth. And there's a degree of breaking in the sense that walls have to fracture and roads have to crack for this overgrowth to be able to come up and the trees to be able to integrate itself. But it's not a ruining in the sense of shattering something apart completely and breaking it down and reabsorbing it. There's always this constant feeling of these two things interact and exist simultaneously. And that, I think, is is a kind of a reminder, and this is where the, the slight element of, not threatening exactly, but it, it feels a little bit unsettling, because what it effectively says is, you as humans never have full control over the Earth. You never had control, that's, that's the, the illusion. illusion. Honestly, Laura Dern in those Jurassic Parks. Amen. Just the one. Yeah, although Nicole Kidman got there first in Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder is not the film that keeps on giving. <laughs> Maybe not to you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, so I, I still eagerly await Days of Thunder trickle. Yes. It's on Tom Cruise's to-do list. <laughs> Continue. Get, get there quick, dude, because Robert Duvall doesn't have long left. Yeah. Um, you are too old for driving stock cars. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got to be the pit boss this time. Um, but it also doesn't say that the Earth will completely overrun anything that mankind creates. The, the presence is always there. It's, there's a reassurance in that. You're not going anywhere. The, the, the residual remnants of humans as a species is not going to suddenly disappear. It will eventually, but that will take far more time than we have concepts for. 
And the actual film itself is, uh, it, it concerned, like, the, there's a lot of MacGuffining at the beginning and, and, and through the middle as a, a princess who's got the key to this floating fortress that's been abandoned for centuries or decades? A long time. A long, long time. <coughs> is being sought out by sky pirates, but she's also being manipulated by uh, uh, the Mark Hamill character. Also, princess with the key to a thing, that's carried over from oh, yeah. Nausicaa. Oh yeah, and yeah, many others. But um, the castle itself is actually positioned as something of an unspeakable power, which should not be in mankind's hands. That's, again, why it's kind of sacred. It's very much like an Uncharted or an Indiana Jones in terms of like, they've got to get to this relic, which is the place itself, and then they've got to make sure the villains don't get that thing. Yeah, and um, it's, it's that sense of, if you don't fully understand the thing, you shouldn't have it because what you intend to use it for will just barely scratch the surface of what it's capable of. And if you fully understand it, you shouldn't have the thing because you know you shouldn't use it because it's too powerful. And this is speaking my language because it is very much an ideal I zeroed in on while writing Panther Soul. But as mad as it may seem, I am glad I'm here because at least, at least, someone can maybe get to the Cloudbreaker before they do. I'm glad to be here too. Now that I've seen just how cruel lines can be, I've decided this is a quest. A race against evil. To keep the armies of darkness from from marching all over Rama. The Panther Soul audio drama project is finally wrapping up and everybody acted their socks off. But I'm particularly proud of Willow. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps I can tell you how. Once we're halfway across the Majara Desert and we stop in at the Temple of... What's that, Kurunchi? Here she listens intently to the Reptor on her shoulder as though it was speaking to her. <laughs> You're right, I've said too much. She raises her paw to her forehead in mock remorse. Is that part of what you read from it? I mouth towards Maximus. The lynx girl nods before he is able to respond. Are you taking this creaky old fellow with you? The cub pirouettes idly. We'd race you there, you motley pair. But I'd be fully grown before you show up, bald of hair, to see me on my throne. <laughs> She's just as much of an arrogant tosser as you are. That does it. A smile spreads across my face and I have to chase it away fiercely to regain control. Oh, fine. What do you want? My throne, like I said. I just need a bodyguard to get me there. <coughs> oh, and you feed us as well too. Thanks, Crunchy, good point. This cub is out of her mind. The antagonists of Castle in the Sky are also uh, characterized by the villainous pirate queen, Captain Dola, uh, who just every time they're, 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 there's this car chase sequence and I just started humming to myself the friggin Boney M song Mar Baker She was the meanest cat in all Chicago town She was the meanest cat She really mowed them down She hit no heart at all No, no, no heart at all She was the meanest cat Oh, she was really tough She left the husband flat Oh, it's a long one. They were mean and strong. Mama, 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 
They don't make pop songs about bank robbers or Rasputin anymore. I find that rather sad. Just this sort of this villainous old lady with these, you know, big strapping sailor boy pirates who eventually, as it turns out, with the Wendy effect, turn out to be lost boys and, and, and just really want to make this princess happy and they thus wash dishes, cook clean, etc. This is, a, you know, one of those instances of nice pirates. But again, you get uh, their almost like, oh, what are they called, gyrothropters or whatever the ones in Dune are. Ornithropters. They have a very similar kind of flying chariot thingies going on here. This was Miyazaki going, you know, wild with all this technology that exists on, in a world on the brink where everyone's kind of not sure what's going to happen. And I think it, was, it blended a little bit with Nausicaa in that in Nausicaa, all the men look the same. They've got these giant bushy beards and mustaches. And it, it emphasizes how different and much younger and feminine Nausicaa is. It's a, it's a similar uh, setup with uh, the, uh, the, the non-pirate people in this. The pirates themselves do tend to be clean-shaven, although I think there's a couple of them that have facial hair, but they do all kind of have that um, carrot-shaped, mm. big, muscular, slightly doofusy dude thing going on. Mm. <clears throat> not quite himbos, but not far off. Mm. So this is very much uh, Ghibli starting as they mean to go on. And that's all on Laputa Castle in the Sky for now. I feel like we went light on this one because at the time as we were recording we didn't realise how expansive this whole series was going to be. We thought one or two shows, not eight. So I'm going to say put a pin in Castle in the Sky, we may revisit it and talk about it in more granular depth. But it is an absolute must-see. From 1988, Grave of the Fireflies. interest in being controversial. I don't like saying I don't like things that other people really like because I don't want to upset people. I don't like starting fights. But I don't like Grave of the Fireflies. And it's not just because it's an unpleasant film to watch. The premise of this is a young boy... We start with a young boy dying of starvation in a train station and then 
meeting the ghost of his dead sister and then getting on a train to go to the next place. And we then cut back to how, you know, I guess you're wondering how I got to be starving to death in a station. Well, well, I observed your surroundings and correctly assessed that it's sometime in the late 40s and put two and two together. Guessing it was war related? And what we get for the duration of this film is a truly miserable experience sat with this brother who is just a young boy spending most of his time looking after his sister and amusing her. It's like that thing about uh, when you've got uh, two people in a rowboat, one who can row and the other who can keep the kids happy uh, so that people don't succumb to despair. And his, it's not a million miles off of Goodbye Lenin. Remember that uh, film yes, with Daniel Brühl? I where do, yes. His mother goes into a uh, coma before the Berlin Wall falls, and then she comes out of it after it's down, and he has to kind of hide the fact that the Berlin has reunified, mm. just to ease his fragile mother into the idea of, you know, things are different now. And yeah. it's, it's kind of like that, but it's horrible, because they, they find an old can of fruit drops, and they have to eek these fruit drops out throughout the whole film and this little girl is just thrilled to get one fruit drop and like she there's one point where like he, he there's none left and he sort of rattles the can around and one falls into her hand it's like it's a wadge of three and some dust and she diligently puts the three back in the can and eats the dust there's, there's, there's a lot of like licking a scrap off your finger as everyone in this film is starving it takes place in Japan uh, near the tail end of the war which is the really tragic part because in all other versions of there aren't many films that westerners have seen that don't focus on the allies this goes back to um oliver stone's epitaph in platoon which is that the first victims in war is innocence itself as a concept and so we get to see these children go from one place to the other and then kind of settle at their aunt's house. Is she literally their aunt or their, their stepmother? Um, no, I believe so. She, she's a relative through their mother yeah. and she encourages them to go and seek relatives through their father. So the boy tries to keep the fact that their mother has died from his sister and in the meantime, the aunt who's also putting up a, a man and a woman who go off and, and work for their country. I think country. it's her daughter and a lodger. A lodger, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you know, they go off and work for the country and uh, the boy seems to be mostly focusing, rather than on scavenging and bringing back food, in keeping his sister amused. And he gets called... Like, the, the aunt goes from being benevolent to being really passive-aggressive and, you know, you useless waste of space kids. Yeah, I think a, a, a key element of this is a criticism or at least an observance of the failures of systems and the networks that we rely on if some kind of tragedy or even just shift in the circumstances occurs and those systems are not flexible enough to cope with that. So the, the, the facet of the ant being initially happy to have them there yeah. 
um, she doesn't anticipate that it's going to last very long. It, the point where she turns is when she starts to realise, oh my god, this is going to drag, I'm not getting rid of them anytime soon. Mm. She thinks initially it's like, oh, the mother's in the hospital, she's going to get better, I will look after them until then, mm. and then they can go home to their bombed out house, but they can go home and, and pick themselves up that way. When she finds out that the mother has died, that's when things start to kind of circle around to, oh, what the fuck do we do now? The but she's never like Roald Dahl odious, no, where you're like, this is no. an antagonist that it's, we can, we have to that... get away from or, or, or we have to fight. Yeah, it's, it's always just passive aggressive bitching about him absolutely. being a waste of space and, and not doing anything. It's obvious that a lot of her stress comes, a, a lot of her resentment, mm. sorry, comes from her own stress and tension. But because she's passive aggressive and never shows any actual emotion it's, it's really difficult to, to sympathise with her about, yeah. like, if she'd been like really angry and passionate mm. you'd be like oh she's breaking inside yeah but she's no, just like, she's oh, just well, mean. you know, it's all right for and some, she isn't it? Casual remarks about how he's nearly old enough to sign up. Like, go and lie about your age and get yourself a wage by becoming a soldier. Um, but the um, the other thing is that the whole process of them succumbing to starvation, there is, I'm not going to say plenty, but there is food around. The yeah. point is that because they are outside the system, because they are not under the jurisdiction yeah. of an adult, they can't sign up for ration cards. He tries to pinch a turnip from a farm. And the farmer beats the shit they, out of him. Absolutely, they can't even even if they try to steal. All of that food is needed for the to, for the authorities yeah. to then distribute. It's it's a flaw in the system that because they're outside of it, they will fall through the cracks. And that's what's being directly critiqued here. I think. And it's a winnowing effect. It slowly wears them down until they're skeletal. And then this, we have to sit and watch this little girl die. And she never really complains that much. She's just sort of becomes weaker and weaker. And she goes from like sort of a, a completely oblivious sort of playful existence to just kind of being limp and slowly succumbing to torpor. And it's fucking crucifying. And the, the boy has no one to really turn to. The aunt drives them away by being this horrible to them. And then when he loads up the cart and they're leaving and the aunt's like, wait, wait, where are you, where are you going? And he's like, we're just going to go do something else and, and they're going to go and live in a bomb shelter. Hmm. But, but she's surprised because she's like, yeah. oh, I thought you were just going to take all my passive aggressiveness and go out and make something that's, of yourself. As thing. opposed to decide this is an unlivable situation. Yeah, and, and again, this there seems to be an element here of uh, the, the system is not suitable to support you, but if you try to do something outside of it, it will snipe at you even more. She relentlessly harasses them for expecting her to cook for them. Yeah. So they go out and buy their own stove and cook their own food, and then she bitches about that and impl and suggests that they did it just to piss her off. Yeah. She's one of the only really awful people in, in Ghibli movies, and ultimately she's right there able to say, no, don't go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've been under a lot of stress right now, but if you leave without any kind of support, you're going to be in real trouble. I'm an adult here. But she just stares at them dumbfounded and doesn't do anything. And as a result, she, the little girl starves to death, little boy burns her to ashes, and then little boy starves to death in the station. The end, folks, ladies and gentlemen. They pour a little bit of water into the old can and shake it up and so she can have fruit drop drink. And, yeah, it's horrible to watch. It was horrible to watch the first time. It was horrible to watch this time. But what really gets to me is that this was directed by Hayao Miyazaki's mate, 
Isayo Takahata. And throughout our Ghibli run, almost all of Takahata's films are way down the bottom of my list. I ranked them all. I don't like his films, by and large. One or two of them are less obnoxious and odious. I don't like Takahata. I don't like his approach to life. Takahata claims this film, Grave of the Fireflies, is not anti-war. Every single constraint on the society that makes everything unravel is as a result of the war. The people are unsympathetic to the children's plight because everyone's in trouble because of the war. It's, it's like saying that Titanic is not a movie about rampant capitalism. It's not overtly, but the constraints around it are that in real life the Titanic went full steam ahead into the ice fields because they were trying to prove how fast the biggest ship of all time was out of some fear that the White Star Line would lose credibility if their big ship was slow. Guess what? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't want to spoil the ending of Titanic, folks, or the middle. This film is, whether it wants to be or not, manifestly anti-war, because it shows how horrible war is to the people at the very bottom. There's no heroic soldier story here. It's a less romantic Empire of the Sun. Because at the end of Empire of the Sun, he meets his parents again, he goes off and he writes Crash. But <laughs> in this, little boy dies. Although I believe it's written in a semi-autobiographical fashion from the original book. I mean, ultimately, it, it is possible because, as I understand it, Takahata, his personal philosophy is somewhat anti-war. And there may, and we may never know if this is the case or not, but there may have been a little bit of an element of looking over your shoulder at the authorities because being anti-war in a vaguely imperialist culture is often frowned on. But he has been outspoken and anti-war outside of Grave of the Fireflies. It's like me being massively anti-capitalist and then being asked, so, uh, Steamheart, is that anti-capitalist? Uh, However... And saying, well, no, no, that, not Steamheart. If you sort of factor in that selling Grave of the Fireflies was his living at that point, mm. then it might just be a case of, oh, I personally can't stand war, but Grave of the Fireflies, if you're pro-war, that's fine, that's fine, you can watch that. Okay, that makes the film bullshit. <laughs> because you don't have the courage of your convictions as a creator under those circumstances. Mm. I don't like the film anyway. I'm merely spitballing, I can't possibly know whether any of that is true. I don't like the film anyway because all it is is a gruelling ordeal and it's horrible and it's rubbing your face in suffering. But for, the, for him to then have the fucking gall to say, oh no, it's not anti-war, it's a breakdown of the system. Because of... Mm. Yeah, um, it, it's, it was based on a short story uh, by Japanese author Akiyuki Nosaka, based on his experiences before, during, and after the firebombing of Kobe in 1945. 
One of his sisters died as a result of sickness, his adopted father died during the firebombing proper, and his younger adopted sister Keiko died of malnutrition in Fuku. It was written as a personal apology to Keiko regarding her death. So, in his short story, the brother dies. In reality, the brother lives and writes a story about it. Now, I need to be abundantly clear here. This is not coming from a place of me being uncaring or unfeeling. This is coming from a place where I am caring too much, feeling far too much. One of my abiding philosophies is that we as a species, as a people, collectively need to evolve beyond war. So being forced to watch atrocity for two hours and then be told, no, this is about a society that we live in, not war. They're one and the same. The society we live in not only allows for war, it accommodates it. But it's important to note, even if that wasn't the case, even if this was just the director, as Mikey Newman pointed out, literally illustrating to us heroics free tragedy as a direct result of war, the way the film goes about itself is remarkably reminiscent of that fairly brief craze of misery porn, true stories about child abuse going into far, far too much detail. Almost always there's a positive side of these books in that the creator is confronting the things that caused immense real-life destruction in their lives and it's helping them move forwards and potentially may help survivors of something like this themselves move forwards. But like I said, in reality the boy lived, in his fantasy the boy died. I'm sorry I'm so late, Setsuko. I'll go ahead and start making up some rice. Up they go. And down again. Oh, fireflies stop. I bought us some chicken, some eggs. And I also have... Setsuko, what's in your mouth? Setsuko, what are you eating? This is a marble. It isn't a drop. I brought you something special, and I know that you're gonna like it. Say that. Have one. Hmm? Setsuko, what... Rice balls. I made them for you. Here. Have one. They're rocks. You don't want them? Setsuko? Look, it's a watermelon, and I didn't even have to steal it. Here, eat it. Hold on to this, and I'll go make us some rice gruel with eggs. 
I'll leave the melon here for you. Okay? Sita. Hmm? Thank you. She never woke up. There's something not quite right with Grave of the Fireflies, and the only reason I'm this vociferous about it is it is one of the highest rated animated films of all time. People watch it and went, this is so important. I, I, my pushback is bolstered by their push forward. That's all I'll say about Grave of the Fireflies. I would say it's hearts in the right place, but I can't actually say it's hearts in the right place. <laughs> yeah. I would say the animation's good, but we're in a Ghibli festival right now. Yes. Released in the same year was My Neighbor Totoro! I was just about to say, does that make Totoro an apology? This is the is tonal... Is going, oh my god, This no. is the tonal whiplash <laughs> of Bambi's mum dying, and then let's see your gay little respect. <laughs> <laughs> to watch a movie about a happy little elf. Totoro is not, very specifically it is not, the uh, springtime raindrop song. You're absolutely right. Hey, let's go. <laughs> hey, let's go. I'm happy as can be. <sighs> oh, how do we bounce back from fireflies? Fuck. We watched My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It, okay, it's beloved for a reason. It is about an appreciation of nature from Hayao Miyazaki, uh, but specifically it harkens back to a time in his own words prior to TV when there were no other distractions. It is about two little kids whose mother is convalescing, which feels very autobiographical. Like We, we mentioned that one of the hallmarks of Miyazaki films is a, a sick lady, his own mother. Often a mother, yeah, his mother had, I believe it was tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. She was certainly confined yeah. to bed for a sizable portion of his life. Yeah. And she did end up uh, passing away. So part of the film is there's a, there's a thin, dangerous undercurrent I don't there. think she passed away until quite late in his life, though. Yes, just before Totoro. Oh, <laughs> there we go. 
Okay. So it, it clearly that was on his thoughts. Mm-hmm. But there's this... Uh, the girls have been taken by their dad to uh, live in a little country house, and so they're, like, running around the place going, It's haunted! And May, the littlest sister is uh, you know, really into fruit drops. Sorry, fucking fireflies taints everything. I said to Willow, count the amount of times that May copies her bigger sister. And we lost count in the end. She is so looking to her to show her, how do I be? Because effectively, their mum's in hospital and May is kind of oblivious as to how bad it is, but they're kind of trying to keep that from May. Some- connections here at this point. Feels like in Grave of the Fireflies a Totoro should have turned up with lunch. Would have been helpful. Um, Yeah, and there's also, there's a sense of by moving the kids out to the country it will provide them with a healing environment and a healing atmosphere and good nourishment and a way to shield them from the damage that is caused naturally when you remove children from a parent. But ultimately part of the message of the film is just being there is not enough. They have to connect with the land through the medium of a huge cat shaped like a bus. (laughs) Through the medium of a big grey gonk. What is Totoro? He's, He's a forest spirit of some kind. Yes, a kami. A kami. Kami, yes. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the Ghibli films uh, are frequented by kami and anything, there's a lot of nature spirits and in, uh, in different forms and ultimately the dad's trying to, to, to get the two girls to stay on the bright side and sort of try and effectively be the brother. Distract them from the very real possibility that their mother could pass away at any minute and it, it never gets mentioned to us, the audience, really. And then it kind of gets revealed, but in a way that's not devastating, but in a kind of, we'll just, we'll just let it get a little darker at this point. And the, the big, you know, crisis point comes when uh, the sisters break apart and uh, May gets shouted at by her big sister, by her hero, the person she trusts most of all, and runs off with, what is it, a, a, a turnip again? Uh, corn. Corn. It's, it, she grew some corn. She was going to give it to her mother. Yeah. And now she's found out her mum's not coming because she's still poorly. Yeah. And this is ultimately the older sister being more in the know about the uh, severity of this situation, panicking and not being able to be the person who can keep the kids amused so that they don't fall into existential crisis. I, I think a part of it is, it's not necessarily that, is it Satsuki who's the older child who is effectively the insert character for Miyazaki himself? That's the role he mm. took when his mother was ill. He was the one who had to pick up the housework and look after his younger siblings. Um, it's not so much that she necessarily knows more about what's going on, but she is able to hold the two conflicting thoughts mum is terribly ill this is a a tragedy and a a very difficult situation and there is an everyday life that I have to get on with for May the reason that that moment when she kind of gets hit with the severity of the situation feels like a tragedy is May is only because she's little she is only able to be in one state at a time she can be happy or she can be sad like a fairy Exactly. Ironically, because this yeah. effectively that's what Totoro and his buddies are. Absolutely. Whereas Suki, as an older 
child has to to hold those two yeah. things together, and that's a, a a great strain on her. And there's a there's a, a bliss almost in the time that she gets to spend with Totoro around, although it's it's a lot less than May does, um, because she is able to let go of that tension for a little while and just be completely embraced by great big huge fluffy grey gonk. Was this the one that uh, Toshio Suzuki said, no, this kid's too much of a paragon? Uh, yes, he said that uh, Satsuki doing all the housework and, and effectively stepping up to the plate was ridiculous. Nobody would believe it. Kids don't do that. This is Miyazaki's mate and the uh, producer of many a Ghibli film yeah. and the co-founder uh, of Ghibli. Miyazaki responded, uh, yes, Fuck you, do. buddy, that was me. I did. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, he said, read between the lines, Suzuki. Read between the lines! Yes. Uh, so, but yes, it is entirely feasible that children can do that. They do frequently. Yeah. It's just that it tends to fly under the radar. But this will be why you keep getting that paragon in uh, Ghibli films and specifically Miyazaki films, because you th- there is part of the boy inside Hayao really is that pure, really is that diligently hardworking, really is that well-meaning. And it's the reconciliation of that with the more cynical adult who's like, oh, what's the fucking point? I do like his assessment of how that relates to people's inherent characters, though. That there's... That people sometimes do very, very good things, but you should be wary of therefore assuming that that means that they are inherently good people because tomorrow they could do a bad thing and that will then throw your entire worldview into question because you've you've set this person up on a pedestal when really you would what you should have been doing was is praising the thing that they've done rather than who they are your assumption of who they are as a result i have often thought over the years how do we do my neighbor totoro because but once the grey one does turn up. The film itself, it's not indulgent in whimsy, but it diverts our attention away from the lo- uh, looming dangers mm-hmm. or uh, the, the looming insidiousness of disease for our loved ones uh, by delivering this great big furry grey thing that... I love the fact that the, the the girls are kind of scared of him. May's less scared of him, and in fact, as soon as she sees him, she's like, he's got a great big tummy, I'm gonna crawl all over him. And he has that kind of dad on a Sunday morning when a little tiny kid is on his chest, and he's like, I was having my one lion of the week. And she's like, I'm gonna tickle your lip. It's very, like, it's very fond of, of the antics of little girls. Uh, and unfortunately, slash fortunately, South Park did a parody of this bit with Cartman and Cthulhu, and I can't get it out of my head because it's really well done. It's absurd. The idea that, 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 that Cthulhu would be this lovely, big, gentle beast, or at least he, he and Cartman are happy to wreak havoc on the same level. I was just together. about to say, the, the idea that the one thing Cthulhu would be tolerant of is Cartman makes perfect sense. Yeah. Either way. Dimension far away, flying through gates of madness and into your heart. Yeah! 
back all you turning dreams into nightmares lick my bag all he sees now begins a new adventure for me you and the dark one Cthulhu sharing adventures and smiles it's a magical fun two pals can share soon the whole they are infectious human waste, uh, despoiling the world with bile and garbage, but uh, they can do a good parody. <clears throat> there's certain elements of this that you, you start to uh, feel like there's more going on. When The, the pinnacle, the emotional pinnacle for me uh, in this is the scene with the rain and the garden and the growing and Joe Hisaishi's score. It's, it's, it's kind of synthy at this point, it's less piano based sort of kicks into gear and starts to really play this kind of busy nature song, but at the same time, there's a melancholy to it. It is a wonderful, wordless scene as Totoro's like, let's make things that grow with an umbrella. And it's it. there's a kind of a what's this thing going to do about the scenes, but this and when they have to go and find May, it also involves bringing in Cat Bus, who's one of Totoro's friends, who is a cat, Speaking who is a bus. Speaking of Cthulhu, Cat Bus is existentially terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, again, that, that wonderful scene when they're at the bus stop prior to Cat Bus, and um, Satsuko sort of is aware that uh, Totoro has sidled up beside them and sort of glances down and he's got these terrible claws. And it, again, this is that, like, the big scary thing that turns out to be very gentle. He is a bit where the world things are. A bit. And he's difficult to really trust. He's wild because when his eyes go like sort of in two different directions and his whole head swells up and he goes, eee, like the Cheshire cat, and then bouncing around the place. It's not entirely clear that he's on the same level of thought as a human. Like he... So he could quite easily land on you and squish yeah. you without even intending to. It's like Lucy thinking about the main ads yes. in the uh, the Bacchanalia in uh, Prince Caspian. Or even giant Rumblebuffin, who mm. might step on her and not realise. Indeed. It's, this one's very much geared towards little kids, and most of the Ghibli films are, except for Grave of the Fireflies. And uh, there's other ones which aren't. Um, it is a really fine introduction for kids to this world, especially as when they go away from it, most of the kids will feel, little kids about May's age will be like, yeah, mummy's poorly in hospital, but she'll be better again, right? Mm. And older kids will be more like Satsuka going, there is no absolute definite on this one. One thing, the, like the element of that growing scene that you mentioned that I really, really love is the fact that after the dance and after the tree and all of the, everything's grown really quickly. When it cuts back, that little patch of land is back to normal again and there are seedlings, but nothing has, in spite of all the magic and all the singing and dancing, it, it, it's almost a message to say, but you still have to let things grow in their own time. Yeah. So there's a pan's labyrinth, is this actually happening or is it not, feel about it. But ultimately it doesn't matter whether it did or not, it's, it's about the kids kind of coping with a, uh, a difficult time for them. Yeah. And I think my favourite individual shot is where they're looking up at this enormous tree with their father and he's asking them to is it thank nature at that point uh, yeah they thank the tree for watching over them yeah um, I think something like there's been a big storm or something but the mm. tree has kind of sheltered the house from significant damage and it's 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 a it is a, a absurdly big it is what a tree 
a big tree feels like when you are very, very small. It's It goes up forever and it goes outwards forever. And it's got this thin, I think it's like a Shinto, um, would be the word, bunting wrapped around it. Yeah, it's like a, a rope that people hang wishes and mm. offerings and things on. But it's ultimately, it's again, it's a sort of respect for nature inherent to that one. It's the kind of tree that you only find out how old it is when you cut it down and then you're sad because it's been cut down. Totoro's ending seems quite abrupt because it's like, and then that's it. Which is rather similar... They all drank lemonade. Which is rather similar to Kiki's delivery service, where Kiki goes from total burnout to... And then she realises she has to be Spider-Man and gets her powers back and because to save the boy that she likes. I did notice, though, that there tends to be in Ghibli movies, once the credits have started to roll and you've had that ending abrupt moment... They give you a bit more epilogue. More. Yeah. There's a little epilogue of, and this is what happened afterwards. Mm. And as you can see, this is how the new normal settled in for them. Yeah. I don't think we necessarily need to reach a... With uh, Kiki, we've already covered it in a, in a very in-depth show. We don't need to reach a massive epiphany for Kiki. She's still very young. She doesn't need to realise anything massively profound at this point. She's not in that level of danger. But it is more of a case of... Like, if you're going to learn anything from Kiki, for the love of God, take a break sometimes. Yes. Which is very relevant in anime. Absolutely. And uh, which or no which, man cannot live on pancakes alone. I like pancakes as long as they're not burned. And I will be re-releasing the Kiki's Delivery Service episode in the main feed so that she can sit with her compatriots. But uh, it is a, it's a lovely film. I think this was actually, even before Totoro, was the one that Willow watched over and over again and absolutely adored. Yeah. It was the phase when it's just like Lion King, followed by Lion King, followed by Lion King, followed by Kiki's Delivery Service, followed by Kiki's Delivery Service. Yes. You kind of had to uh, put up with one film being played over and over. But when it's a film that's so wonderful and nourishing, I was just about it's to not say, the same I, as Shrek 2. I, yeah. <laughs> when I hear my, my colleagues and friends talking about whatever film it is that their kids are currently into and watching on repeat, and I'm like, we got so lucky. Mm. Mine, for the record, was Return of the Jedi. Oh, nice. What age were you at that point? Seven, maybe eight. Okay. Well, I'm talking like pre-verbal, like when they just want the same thing over and over yeah, again. Yeah, see, for me, that was pre-video. So yeah, I know. So if you, <laughs> there, there wasn't one. It would have to be a cassette tape I watched or something. Return of the Jedi every Christmas when it was on. <laughs> it was on two Christmases. I actually have the broadcast dates for in the UK. Oh, wow. You are useful. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I watched Return of the Jedi because I managed to record it that yeah, one time. Yeah, same here. The original Star Wars premiered on ITV on the 24th of October 1982, five years after it was originally in cinemas. It then played four more times over four subsequent years, the last being 1988. The Empire Strikes Back premiered on UK's ITV on Christmas Day 1988. After that it was 91, 94 and 95, then it went to Sky, same as Star Wars. And Return of the Jedi, Boxing Day, 1989. So I'd have been nine years old, Sharon would have been 11. Yeah, if, if, if the kid just wants to watch the boss baby over and over again, maybe just consider static. You may have to have an encounter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can summon static on modern TVs, but it's better than the boss baby. Just put on some white noise and turn the TV's broken. Oh, it's busted. Sorry, kid, read a book. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. 
Or, or, don't buy them the Boss Baby, don't give them the Netflix password. <laughs> People tell me it's weird that I give my kid my Netflix password. <laughs> so you tell me, is it? Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> Who are you? A great big soup gremlin? Okay, now a long time ago, we're talking 10 years ago, I collected from our listeners little interview snippets and little testimonials about their favorite films of the 1980s. It represented a mammoth editing marathon that I kept just putting aside because I had so much else to deal with. This past year, I finally turned these into a series of seven collected Patreon-only episodes. But the one piece I held back on was Josh Garrity talking about My Neighbor Totoro. And I present that to you in its entirety here. Many thanks to Josh. We owe a great deal to him because his insight on The Last Airbender, on his short-lived Animation Archives YouTube series, actually got us watching the best animated show ever made. And we got some of our best listeners when we put out our Legend of Ang and Legend of Korra shows, which Josh was on. You can find him right now on Kanan Rinse, which goes into video games in a similar depth to the way we go into films. Um, My Neighbor Totoro is a really personal film for me because there is all the magical stuff. There's the kids interacting with these magical creatures, which is all fun and games and so forth. But at the core of it, I feel like this film is about children coming, um, coming to grips with the concept of mortality. And despite the fact that nobody dies in this film, death does loom over the narrative and having to face the idea of a loved one dying is kind of core to the narrative. Mei and Satsuki's mother is in hospital during the duration of this film. They never tell you exactly what's wrong with her. All that you know is that she's... All that you know is that she's very ill um, and they've uh, she can't be at home uh, for whatever reason um, and I, I think that works really well because that makes it um, for the audience for people who have been in that situation it means that it's not a, spe- a specific situation um, They, it's very easy to relate it to a situation you've had in your own life and for me um, this film really hit home because when I was really young when I was a- around the same age as these kids my dad had a very severe car accident and there were a couple of moments there where it seemed like he was going to die and um, and when you're that age um, parents aren't just you know people who support you or whatever they're gods basically you know like they're the, the one rock in your life that is consistent and the scene where Satsuki just says what if mum dies what if we're um, that's it like that that gets to me every time because I was in that I was in that place at one point in my life mm. I, I was there and just <sighs> sorry I'm I'm actually kind of getting emotional just talking about it um, 
it, it just it captures this film captures a point in my life that um, very few films have managed to do just this snapshot of just horribleness <laughs> but overcoming that horribleness because you know my dad eventually got better and he recovered and he's fine now he's happy but it, it, it's this film really did a good job of capturing that point in my life now enough of my own personal kind of connection with this film I, I the thing that makes this film uh, connect with so many other people is that I feel like in a lot of ways this is um a lot of people's first experience with Japanese anime and I, I and I think I would use this film to introduce people to anime um, if they were unfamiliar with it because unlike a lot of anime it's accessible uh, the story is simple and easy to follow and the characters are so colorful and wonderful and so well fleshed out it really you know people describe Ghibli as the uh, Disney of Japan mm. and I feel like this film uh, better you know more than any other film in their ca uh, in their catalog um, expresses that um, Totoro is such a beautifully animated creature uh, but he's not he's not saccharine he's not too cute mm. he's he's goofy enough and he's um he's playful enough and silly enough for adults to connect with him as well um just the colors like all the backdrops look like watercolor paintings uh, just that that's like nobody does backdrops like studio uh, ghibli like they're always fantastic the music oh the music is so brilliant um I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really describing this film very well because I, I'm Just using a lot superlatives of superlatives. I'm, I'm very. Let me tell you, the characters excellent. The music brilliant. <laughs> but it's a hundred percent endorsement that everyone should go away and watch it anyway. If you should than... watch that, even if like if you're somebody who says you know I'm not interested in anime. Anime is terrible. I don't like it. Watch this film because oh, you will. You will enjoy this film. Uh, it's. I it's one of those films like the Shawshank Redemption or something like that mm. where I can see... Yeah, I've never, I've never heard anyone who doesn't like My Neighbor Totoro who yeah, has ever it, said that unless they're just trying to get a reaction out of people. Yeah, it, it, there is something for everyone there. For kids, there's, you know, the, you, you know, the colourful monsters and creatures that, you uh, know, catch that. I will say about the, for the kids thing, there is a huge element in this which um, adults don't really uh, share with the children, which is that when kids are very young, they love to see stories where there's a large, monstrous type creature who starts out intimidating and they're a little bit unsure and scared of him and you know, he could eat them in one gulp. But then by the end, the, the, the child, the subject in question that they're identifying with on screen, um, you know, is, adores this creature. Kids cannot get enough of that story. The Iron Giant is based yeah. entirely on this. The idea that, that what is scary, you know, this portent of doom, can become something that actually strengthens you. Nurtures, supports, and protects. And here I'm going to play you another segment from one of my audio dramas, Tiger's Eye, where a 10-foot-tall purple huntress tiger finds a lost Latino boy in the jungle and we get the frightening monster that turns out to be gentle and protective, but from her point of view. In this story of communication, 
across culture, language and even species, and an intangible quality shared by living creatures that we arrogantly refer to as humanity. By the time I turn back to inspect the coughing animal in a puddle on the ground, it has already scurried off. My head turns this way and that, scenting it. I catch it hiding in the hollow of a drago tree some way away, but I do not approach. Instead, I glance over and then turn my back, thinking and considering. It does not emerge, but I hear three telltale clicks as it suppresses sneezes. I sigh and take a strip of dried antelope from my pouch. I approach the drago trunk, stop some yards off, and place the meat on the leaves of the forest floor. I return to my spot, turn my back, and sit. This is foolish. Leave it or kill it. Not much meat for the family. Perhaps a good meal for you. It has emerged. It is creeping forward. The food is gone. The small animal has returned to its hidey hole. Tiny scent of meat being chewed. I scan the canopy and spot a sunfruit tree. I am in the tree, retrieving a particularly juicy one. I take another for me and return to the floor. I lay the offering in the same spot and go back to mine. I eat my fruit and wait. The fruit is gone, yet it will still not venture closer to me. My patience dwindles. Then a raptor shows up. Quietly. But I can feel it slinking through the undergrowth, licking its jaws. It is making for the tree and the opening of the hollow. Short, scuttling rushes, checking me for movement. Leave it. This is right. The strange creature does not belong here, and the forest should take him. The raptor opens its mouth wide and hisses. I hear a panic scream, and again carols in my thoughts. <gasps> I have the reptar's open jaws in my grip, and I force them apart, carefully avoiding the elongated fangs, dribbling, paralyzing venom. A splintering sound, and the beast drops, gurgling, its long, forked tongue lolling. Good skin. Tough. And four absolutely deadly arrowheads. The warriors will be happy with me. Once again... I am disturbed by how my entirely practical decision not to act has been circumvented by instinct. It is looking at me. White eyes wide with brown irises, light brown skin, black fur on its head only. It is still, like prey. I turn my back. I will not waste any more effort on this thing. I haul the reptor carcass onto my shoulder, positioning the head to the front so I can keep those fangs safely away. I start to walk. Hey! Hey! 
The creature is following me. I can feel more reptors nearby. Maybe a leopard or two just off to the edges of my perception. I turn and glare at the creature, finally getting a good look at it. And I think it's an important lesson to kids, actually, that idea of never judging something solely on its appearance. Mm. Like you have That's to why kids get love to know. Yeah, you have to get to know something. Like to Toro, you know, you see when that first scene uh, where he's yawning, his mouth is so he could eat those children whole, but he's you know he's a lovely creature. He's a he's. You know, he tries to help those kids out in a really hard point, you know, point in time in their life. Yeah. I will say the the inverse is also true. That that um, thing that frightens kids the most is something that looks like it should be uh, wonderful and sweet and that they can trust. Suddenly turning on a dime and being uh, dangerous. Yeah. Kids freak out when something which looked like you're you're afraid of cute little puppies. And I think at some point in your life something that's looked cute has suddenly started barking at you and you've gone ah, I trusted you cute puppy <laughs> it, it, it's not okay I should say it's not that I'm like oh my god cute puppies I must run away it's more that they unsettle me and I think your theory is right though I think at one point in my childhood a cute puppy started barking at me and ever since I've been disturbed oh, um, oh dear I want to um, go back in time and drop kick whatever dog did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us every month. And a big shout-out to our top-tier patrons, Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finn Barnicol, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow. Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. We will be back next week with part three of our Coen Brothers season, The Big Lebowski. And when we return for part three of the Ghibli series, Kiki's Delivery Service will be immediately accessible to you. And we'll be talking about Only Yesterday, Ocean Waves, Pompoco, Porco Rosso, and Whisper of the Heart. Until then, I'm going to leave you with the Japanese version of the Totoro song.